Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us here and online and uh, gathering with us for this Easter week. We are going through a series where we've been preaching through Matthew for some time now, just to bring you up to speed. And we preached on Palm Sunday, actually, about four weeks ago. And that's actually been quite nice because we have not had to rush through the narrative of the Easter week. Matthew spends over a quarter of his gospel talking about this week. And so it's been nice to be able to have the luxury of five or six or seven Sundays to be able to talk about each of the events through the week. And so we looked at Palm Sunday a few weeks ago. Last week, you remember, it marked a shift in the narrative of Matthew, and we, we left behind the final discourse of Jesus' teaching, and we returned to the narrative or to the actions of Jesus in the final week of his life the final week in Jerusalem. And we're now down to days. We're now down even to just hours from the cross. And as Jesus prepares to do the most important thing in history, he is describing to his disciples what it is that he goes to do. And in that description of what he's doing, last week we considered the Passover supper in the sharing of the bread and the sharing of the communal cup of wine, we learned how we identify with the substitutionary lamb by eating the flesh, by drinking the blood. Just like the lamb of the Passover, we are able to participate in the promise of what God's wrath will pass over us that we will not be touched by his anger at our sin. And we participate in the promise, just like Israel, of being set free from slavery, brought into the presence of God, and ultimately, eventually led to the promised kingdom. And this week, Matthew continues to describe for us the actions of Jesus in what he's going to do for us on the cross. This week, we consider the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. After the Passover supper with the disciples, Jesus took them out of the city to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he went there to pray. In the Passover, we learned how to rightly apprehend our identity with the Lamb. And in the Garden, we have the opportunity to rightly understand how the Lamb identifies with us. You see, it's an exchange. We identify with the lamb, and the lamb identifies with us. And this is what Jesus is going to do on the cross, that great exchange. He is going to wholly take on our identity in our sinful humanity, even at the same time as we wholly identify with him as the righteous and spotless sacrifice. But here's the thing about the cross. You can't get to the cross without going through Gethsemane. And far too often we want to shorten our stay or we want to even bypass Gethsemane completely in our own personal approach to the cross. We want to just rush straight to the victory and the accomplishment for us by Jesus on the cross, but not pause to recognize how deep our need for the cross is in the first place. And that's what Gethsemane means. It means pausing. It means praying. It means coming face to face with a holy and righteous and pure and also 
wrathful God, just as Jesus does in Gethsemane. Because it's very possible that the cross will be no use to you, and certainly possible that the cross lacks most of its power in your life. And if you're wondering, why does the cross and the gospel not seem to have power in my life? Or why is it that the cross does not capture me in the saving way it seems to capture others? It's because we have rushed past Gethsemane. We have rushed past the apprehension and the appreciation of our sin and the perfection and righteous wrath of God. And if we bypass Gethsemane, the cross has no power for us. If we don't recognize our sin, the cross cannot save us. So we have to pause and stay in Gethsemane for the cross to have its power. So as we read this text from Matthew 26, I want you to look and I want you to listen for three key elements that we will use to unpack its importance for us. The first thing to listen for is that Jesus is experiencing excruciating sorrow even unto death. The second thing is that he must drink a cup that he prays three times be taken away from him. Thirdly, His disciples may have willing spirits, but something has to be done for their weak flesh. And let's just pray before we look at Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible opportunity to just take the time to work through this final week, this holy week, to understand what Jesus is doing more significantly. Father, I pray it would become more real to us, maybe than ever before in our life, and that that would lead us into greater and greater freedom and rejoicing and victory in the cross. Father, we just, we thank you. This is it. This is, this is what all history held its breath for. This is what we rejoice in. This is what we'll celebrate for eternity. Father, we just give you all the praise this morning. Open our hearts and our minds and our souls to what you would teach us in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And so leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. 
So the first thing that we see in this text is Jesus identifying with us in our sorrow and despair, our emotional and spiritual depression. And I mean that word, depression. Jesus is going to have his hours of physical torture and pain ahead of him, and we spend a lot of our attention there in this season, sometimes maybe too much of our attention on the physical aspect of the crucifixion. But here in the garden, we learn that the cross is first and foremost about a spiritual despair. And Jesus identifies with us in that spiritual despair that we encounter in our life. It says, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So in verse 47, we we see the beginning of an escalation. He began to be sorrowful. And the Greek word for sorrow there is lupos, which means to be subject to distress or to be subject to grief or heavy grief causing pain. But then in verse 38, Jesus expresses, he verbalizes to his own disciples. This isn't just something going on in his head. He actually tells his friends he says, I, my soul is very sorrowful. And the Greek there is now escalated to perilupus, literally meaning encompassed by sorrow or surrounded by sorrow. You know that Greek prefix peri because it's like perimeter. It's the encircling. It's the inscribing. And Jesus says, I am surrounded by sorrow. Jesus says that His sorrow has encircled him. It's entrapped him. In a very real sense, in a very literal sense, Jesus doesn't see a way out. Listen. Jesus identifies with us in our depression, in our grief, in our sorrow, even unto death. Jesus has been there. He's been there deeper than we can imagine. He knows what it's like to feel like there is no way out. And this is where you've been. He knows. He knows what you've thought. He knows what it's driven you to. Jesus entered into our humanity. He entered into our suffering and sorrow, and he did it for us. Listen to the prophet Isaiah describing Jesus as the man of sorrows. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 5, he says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteem him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And praise God for those last six words, right? By his wounds we are healed. Those healing wounds are coming, and they come on the cross, but we don't get to the cross without first the sorrow of Gethsemane. Jesus is a man of sorrows. Here he is sorrowful, even unto death. Jesus wants to escape. He even wants to escape by death. Remember, Jesus was tempted in every way, 
So there's nothing you've experienced that Jesus hasn't experienced. Jesus wants to escape even by death, but we have to recognize this, and this is what sort of, you know, Matthew or the Holy Spirit, whatever, just sort of blew my mind this week. Jesus is sorrowful unto death. He wants to escape by death, but not the death on the cross. That's the death he's trying to avoid. He just wants, God, can you just give me like a regular everyday death so that I can just get out of this? Like, can I just end my time here on earth with just a normal human death the way everybody else dies? Because I see the death I'm going to. It's going to be a death like no other. That's not the death that I want. He prays three times to avoid that death. He is sorrowful even unto death. Just give me a normal death. And so we have to ask ourselves, if Jesus wants to avoid that cross death, then what is the cross death? What is driving Jesus to desire escape from it? To even ask God to remove it, to let him finish his task some other way other than the cross? Well, we get a picture of what that is here, too. The first thing is that Jesus is a man of sorrow. He identifies with us in our despair. The second thing is that the cross death is the cup of God's wrath. We read for the first time in verse 39, Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And three times he prays this same prayer. Let this cup pass, but if it's your will, I'll do it. And we talked last week about the cup of the Passover, representing the new covenant, the cup of the new promise that is kept by the blood of Jesus as our substitutionary lamb. We identify with the lamb in the cup of the Passover. That's the first cup. But Jesus identifies with us by drinking a very different cup. Jesus is talking about a cup here. It's not the cup of the Passover. It's the cup of God's wrath that he needs to drink. We drink the cup of communion. He drinks the cup of wrath. And here is where the true sorrow of Jesus finds its source. Here's where we discover what is really going to take place on the cross. Jesus accepts the full cup of God's wrath, not for his sin, but for our sin. Isaiah 51 describes this cup. He says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup that causes people to stagger. They are full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So listen, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. This is what your Lord says, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have removed the cup of staggering from your hand, the bowl of my wrath. You will never drink again. Praise God. You'll never drink it. But it's there, that cup of God's wrath, it's there. And Israel drank it for a while, and we drink it in the curse of this world. Jeremiah refers to the cup of God's wrath this way. He says in Jeremiah 25, This is what the Lord God of Israel said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations whom I send you drink it. And when they drink it, they will stagger and lose their minds because of the sword I will send among them. 
Or Psalm 75 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is the cup of God's wrath that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about the Passover cup. He's not talking about the cup of communion that we take to share in him for our communion, for our identifying with him. He's talking about the cup of God's wrath that is reserved for the wicked, and we are all wicked. And it's reserved for us unless another one drinks it in our stead so that we never have to. We don't like Gethsemane. We don't want to spend time here in our prayer life. We don't want to spend time here even thinking about it for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't want to spend time here either, but there is no salvation in the cross unless Jesus approaches the cross as drinking, absorbing, biblical word warning here, the propitiation of the wrath of God. Unless the cross death of Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath, there is no salvation for the nations or for us. And we don't even like to think about God's wrath. And our enemy knows we don't like to think about God's wrath. He has two really easy lies for us about Gethsemane. These are the two lies that the enemy will trot out every time someone starts to talk about Jesus or sin or the cross or the wrath of God. The first lie is, you are not really all that bad. In fact, you're naturally a good person. You're not wicked. You don't need to worry about judgment because you're a good person. That's lie number one. The second lie that follows right on its heels, God has no right to be angry. He shouldn't be that angry with you. In fact, maybe God isn't all that angry. He just gives everybody a free pass. And the world will tell you both of those lies almost immediately when you bring up sin and the cross, and God. You're not all that bad, and God shouldn't be angry at you. Some so-called Christian teachers will even tell you those lies, that you're not all that bad, and Jesus doesn't have to suffer the wrath of God because God's not angry at our sin. But the Bible, however, you can listen to the world if you want, and you hear that message in the world all the time, right? You're not all that bad. God shouldn't be that angry. That's what the world says all the time. The Bible, however, is crystal clear on the opposite direction, and so you've got to decide which one you're going to listen to, which one's probably telling the truth. The Bible says we really are all that bad, and that God really is holy and pure and righteous, and he is justified in his wrath at sin. God is just and righteous in all his ways. Genesis 18 says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Deuteronomy 32 says his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Isaiah 5.16 says, but the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. I'm not going to stand here and argue the righteousness of God and his justice against sin with you. There's over 580 verses in the Bible that will do that. But I will point out that we have betrayed his righteousness 
We have even despised his righteousness. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Listen, church. Listen, world. No Christian who understands Christianity thinks that we are better than anyone else. (laughs) We are sinful, despised, worthless people apart from the grace of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, We have not done anything to earn this. We are as broken and as rebellious as everybody else. But by the grace of God, he penetrated in his mercy into our darkened minds and our hearts. And he said, I love you. And I can remove that wrath from you. God's wrath against sin and against sinners who despise him and destroy is justified in every measure. And that wrath will be poured out in one of two places. That wrath will either be poured out on the wicked themselves if they do not repent. And we read of that in Revelations 14. We're not done with the cup of wrath yet. It says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. There it is again, poured out full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. God's wrath is either going to be poured out on the wicked who refuse to repent and continue in their rebellion, or it will be poured out on Jesus on the cross, and he will absorb the wrath that was meant for those who confess their sin those who confess their rebellion, those who confess their betrayal, those who put their trust entirely in him, the cup of God's wrath will be poured out on Jesus instead. But we don't get to the cross unless we go through the confession of Gethsemane. And I mean that in our own lives. Don't short-circuit your, your confession. Don't short-circuit your regret. That's the word I was reaching for there. Don't short-circuit your regret over your sin. Don't short-circuit your brokenness over your rebellion and your disobedience and your selfishness and your idolatry. If you try to short-circuit that, and I've seen it happen. I've, I've seen it happen in times of revival where people are coming and they're praying and they're confessing their sins and somebody comes alongside them and they say, oh, it's okay, it's okay, you know, it, it'll be good. Like, don't stop somebody who's in the midst of confessing their sin. Don't short-circuit that. They've got to go through Gethsemane in order to get to the cross. And don't do it in your own life either. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you and you are in your prayer closet and you're weeping and you are having the Holy Spirit show you how rebellious you've been, you maybe haven't seen it your whole life, you maybe haven't seen it for decades, but the Holy Spirit starts to peel back your heart and show you your rebellion and show you your idolatry and show you your disdain for God and your lack of treasuring what is truly holy and the sinfulness of your life, don't Run away from that prayer. Don't short-circuit it. You have to go through Gethsemane to get to the cross. We don't get to the cross, and it doesn't have the power to transform our lives unless we let it take us through Gethsemane. 
Our hearts and our soul and our mind has to apprehend the depth of our sin and our desperate need of Jesus to deflect that wrath, or there is no victory for us on the cross. The cross has no saving power if we pretend we have no sin. And the cross loses its life's changing power if we refuse to repent as we approach it. Which brings us to the third point. First point is Jesus identifies with us in our sorrow. The second point is that he is willing to drink the cup of God's wrath. The third point is, is that we may have willing spirits, but something has to be done for our weak flesh. And Christ has come to do it. It says in verse 40, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Man, that's like the banner over all of our lives, right? (laughs) Every Christian, spirit's willing, flesh is weak. That's what Paul's talking about, Romans 7, right? In my mind, I agree with the law of God, but in my flesh, I find I do the things I don't want to do. Spirit's willing, flesh is weak. And we, as we almost always are in these narratives, we are the disciples. We can't bear the wrath of God. It has to be born for us. In fact, we can't even muster up in ourselves our own strength to wake ourselves to our need of the cross. We can't even get ourselves awake to know that we need Jesus. All Jesus wants for his disciples to do is stay awake. Three times he returns from praying to the Father to remove the crop of wrath, and three times he comes back to find his disciples snoring. It's like, really, guys? One hour. One hour. I'm doing this for you. I'm not even doing it for me. I'm doing this for you. It's not my sin. It's yours. God is not angry with me. God is pleased with me. He's not wrathful at me. It's you. It's your sin, and you're sleeping. You're the ones in danger. Seriously? One hour. You can't stay awake. Remember how even Isaiah 51 began? Remember what he said? He said, wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Wake up, Israel. Wake up, God's people. He's talking to his people here. He's not even talking to the world. He's talking to God's people. Wake up, Israel. Wake up, Jerusalem. Have you not suffered enough? The evidence of your sinful world are the wars and the robberies and the murders and the abuses and the slavery and the addiction and the crime and the unrest. Is none of this enough to wake you up yet to the wrath of God on sin and sinners? Seriously, world. Seriously, disciples, when are you going to wake up? And yet three times Jesus returns, and three times Jesus accepts the cup on behalf of the disciples that fail him. I mean, two of these guys are the ones who literally said in Matthew chapter 20 that they were willing to drink the cup that Jesus would drink. You remember they were arguing? They were arguing about who's going to sit on the left and who's going to sit on the right hand of his throne in the kingdom. They're thinking, okay, good days are coming. We've got the Messiah. We're his closest disciples. Kingdom coming. Good days ahead of us. Jesus says, you do not even know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they said, we are able. We're able, they say. (laughs) Yeah. They can't even stay awake while Jesus is praying to have the cup removed let alone can they drink it. 
Jesus is going to drink their cup. We are the disciples. We can't drink this cup. We can barely stay awake in our flesh to know that we need the cup. But there is a point in all of our lives. There's a point in all of our lives who know Jesus today where Jesus came along and woke you up. Jesus did something, and he kicked you awake, and you suddenly realized, I need a Savior to drink this cup of wrath for me. He does something to nudge you awake out of your slumber, to turn on the lights, and we get a sense that we need to do something. Our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak. It is so weak and so sinful and rebellious, and God is holy and righteous and angry at our sin. What can we do? And Jesus nudges us awake, not just once or twice. He may do it three times. He may do it more often. But when Jesus nudges you awake, realize what he's doing. He's trying to wake you up to your need of him. What do you do when you are so rebellious and sinful and God is so righteous and perfect and just? He's a judge that's not going to let sin go unpunished. How could we respect or love a God who just let things like abuse and addiction and poverty and war go unpunished? How would not be a God worth worshiping? God is righteous and pure and just, and he is going to punish sin. And we're the sinners. What are we going to do? Jesus says, I'll drink that wrath. I will be the just. God will be the just and the justifier. He will be held just because he's punished sin, but he will be the justifier of the righteous because he will absorb the punishment himself. So when Jesus comes along and he nudges you awake, you trust in Jesus. Jesus has done it. Jesus has drunk the cup of wrath intended for us. If we trust in him, if we put our hope in him, if we trust in the finished cross death that he went to die, that it is a substitution, it is an absorption, it is a deflection, it is a propitiation, whatever word you want to use for it. However you want to understand it, Jesus has done for us what we could not do if we trust that he has done it and we set our life to treasure and follow and cherish him out of that trust. He's done it because God is both righteousness and love. He is both just and the justifier. God said, we have this sin problem, but I have the solution. I'll do it. I'll die. I will bear the penalty that you cannot bear so that you can be set free to be in my presence and to come into the kingdom. But there is no freedom in the cross unless you go through your garden of Gethsemane. It's your sin. It's my sin that took Jesus to the cross. He didn't die for his sin. He didn't have any. He died for me. He died for you. We really are that bad. And God really is that righteous and angry. But Jesus really is that perfect and compassionate person. He really is that perfect and compassionate God man who identifies with us in our sin and is able to bear the wrath of God. God really is that wise and loving that he has made a way for our salvation where there was no other possible way. How do we know there was no other possible way? Because Jesus prayed three times to come up with another plan. 
I mean, they, they had this plan from before the foundation of the world, right? God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in eternity forever. They knew what was going to happen. They had this plan all arranged. And here Jesus finally gets to this point in history. He's facing it hours away. And he's like, is there another plan? <laughs> can, can, we, can we just think of another plan? And the Father and the Holy Spirit and Jesus, because they're one, they say, no, there's no other plan. No other way. There's no other way that a perfectly righteous, holy God can be satisfied unless there is a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus made that choice. He said, not my will, but yours. I'll be that perfect sacrifice. If we deny the reality of our sin and we deny the reality of God's wrath, then we will deny the cross, the power that it has to save us and the power that it has to transform us. So don't avoid your Gethsemanes. Press into them the way Jesus did and use those moments of sorrow and grief and despair over our wretchedness to elevate our treasuring and rejoicing at what Christ has done on the cross. That's what Gethsemane's for. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the, the teaching that you give us here through your son. Thank you for Matthew and his record of it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that presses it on our minds. Thank you for this season that we have to come to every year to remind ourselves, and we need it at least every year, to just remind ourselves that you are so gracious and merciful and good that you've made promise after promise after promise to rescue us, not because of what we do, but because of what you have done already. So, Father, just help us to apprehend that, to grasp it, to appreciate it, to put all of our hope in you and in nothing else, and in the finished cross work of Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.